right. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited. Today, we have an exciting VIP guest. I call her Dr. Ellen Langer. Hi, Ellen. <clears throat> Great hey, to Rachel. see you today again. Welcome back. Thank you. So for those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Langer's work, Ellen is known as the mother of mindfulness. She also recently came out with her latest book called The Mindful Body and the thinking our way through to chronic health. I think this is such an important topic today, and I do think this is groundbreaking. So I'm so excited to talk more about this. You've also published incredible research in your tenure there at Harvard, including count, uh, counterclockwise, your studies, and we'll talk all kinds of stuff with that. But it's just great to have you here. I'm just uh, really excited to dive in. How are you okay, doing? Okay, let's dive. Yeah. All right. So you're coming to us live, I know, from Cambridge, right? No, I'm in Dartmouth, Mass. right oh, now. Okay, you're in Mass. Awesome. Well, the, 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 the leaves are peeping and That's right. sure things are going well there. But uh, for you, why were you feeling compelled to write The Mindful Body, knowing that well, chronic I, health is kind of happening right now for everybody? Sure. Well, first of all, I keep doing research that I want people to know about, and putting it in a book is always a way for that to happen. Um, but I've been on this quest, we'll say, for my entire life. I'm happy. I'm healthy. I see very few other people in, in either of those states. So I keep trying, writing, doing research, telling people, essentially, everything is mutable. We can make all sorts of changes. And um, what's most exciting about this book, essentially, is the control we actually over, we have over our health. Now, this book started as a memoir. So what that means is that there are a lot of fun, maybe sexy stories in it. I and noticed. Then, then I just you know, kept writing and it became similar to mindfulness, but with more stories. Mm -hmm. In fact, some of the stories, the, some of the earliest things uh, that I experienced gave rise to what eventually became my mind-body unity theory. So in a very quick way. But mind-body unity is um, that mind and body are just one thing. And if you put them together as one thing, then wherever you put one, you're necessarily putting the other. And that's why we have so much control that we're not realizing. In the distant past, the medical model used to believe the only way you were going to get sick would be the introduction of an antigen. It's nice to be happy, but it was irrelevant. Now people know that things like stress and so on are not good for your health. Uh, so they talk about mind-body connection. I am not talking about mind-body connection. If you talk about mind-body connection, you get into this funny thing, trying to figure out how do you get from this fuzzy thing called a thought to something material called the body. So I don't have to bother with any of those because I'm talking about mind-body unity. All right. So some of the questions you'll ask me, hopefully I'll get to tell you some of the unusual mind things, unusual body things, uh, all based on research. But yeah. I, I was going to tell you this story. So Please. when I was uh, young, um, I was married um, very young and I went to Paris on my honeymoon honeymoon and I'm now uh, 18 or 19 going on 40. Okay, so we go to Paris, we go out to eat. And in this restaurant, I order a mixed grill. One of the things on the mixed grill was pancreas. 
Okay, now I have to prove that I'm all grown up. I have to get myself to eat the pancreas, which is not going to be easy for me. So I eat everything else on the plate. And now, before that, I asked my then husband, which of these things was the pancreas? And he was more worldly than I. He said that. Okay, I eat everything else. And now the moment of truth, can I do it? I have to do it, Rachel, because I'm all grown up. I start eating it and I literally, literally get sick to my stomach. He starts laughing. I say, why are you laughing? He said, because that's chicken. I ate the pancreas quite a while ago. Okay, so, and I love chicken, but thinking it wasn't chicken, I had made myself sick. Um, that was on one end. Much later, my mother was diagnosed with um, brain uh, with breast cancer, and the cancer had metastasized to her pancreas. Now, you probably don't know anybody who has any pancreas stories. I have two of them. Not many. So, so um, now the uh, cancer is in a pancreas, and that's the end game. All right. So this is terrible. Then magically, it was gone. And the medical world can't explain it. And uh, mind-body unity can. It's also the case that it made me think a lot about these spontaneous remissions, which I believe and can argue at another time, there's no time now, that I think they're far more common than most people believe. You know, just it's sort of imagine, just to, you know, to um, illustrate that. So the, the medical world says you have three months to live. You say, I want to go home, you have my family, die in my own bed, whatever. And then magically you get better. I don't think it would occur to most people to call their doctors and say, ha ha, you were wrong. You know, so we, we just don't know. Okay. Now back to basics. What were you going to ask me? I yeah, may give you a I, chance to talk because this is your podcast. This is good. No, we want to hear from you too. And uh, we, so this is a good topic, mind, body, unity. And what I was going to ask was, I sense, and my my sense is there's a lot of different uh, thought leaders like yourself who are coming up with these kinds of theories now, like in this day and age. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you sense that as well? Like, do you feel like there's more now we're thinking about mind body where it is more of a unit it is more integrated? No, no. Um, I think people have gotten as far as mind and body connection. Okay. And What's the talking. difference? Can you really clarify that? Well, for yeah, it, it's big difference because mind and body have treated as two separate things. Then you have to figure out how you get from one of those to the other. And you're limited in the kinds of, um, uh, let's say, the kinds of cures, for example, for dread diseases um, that you can come up with mind-body unity. You know, the first study I did testing mind-body unity was quite a while ago. It's called the counterclockwise study. And um, in this study, we retrofitted a retreat to 20 years earlier, and we had elderly men live there as if they were their younger selves. So they spoke about the past events in the present tense, as if it was just happening. In a period of time, less than one week, we found their vision improved. These are men, 90 years old. Their vision improved, their hearing improved, their strength, their memory, and they look noticeably younger. Um, this is now a, a study that I think many people know about. Um, uh, if you watch The Simpsons Go to Havana, they describe the study. So if The Simpsons think it, it's important, who am I to argue? Anyway, so, so that was the first one. We took their minds, we made the minds younger, the body 
then um, uh, showed us that they got younger. The next study, and there are so many, I'm only going to give you a couple. Yeah. But the next study was a study with chambermaids. Chambermaids are interesting because they're exercising all day long, but they think, according to the Surgeon General, exercise is what you do after work because that's what the Surgeon General does. It's at a desk. Okay. And, you know, after work, they're just too tired. So very simple study. We just divide them into two groups and we teach one group that in fact, their work is exercise. Making a bed is like working on this machine at the gym. And so lots and lots of measures. They're not eating any differently. They're not working any harder. The only difference between the two groups before we take the final measures is now one of those two groups sees their work as exercise. As a result of that change of mind, they lost weight. There was a change in body mass index, waist to hip ratio, and their blood pressure came down. So those were studies you know, from the past. Now we have a whole bunch of new ones. Um, I'll just tempt you with one of them if people find it interesting. Yes. I hope they're good. Them like studies. Okay. So um, we inflicted a wound. Now it would have been dramatic if it could be a big wound but you know, I wouldn't hurt people that way. And even if I were sadistic, uh, the review committee wouldn't let me. But anyway, it's a wound nonetheless. And they're in front of a clock, three groups of people. The clock is rigged, but they don't know it. So you have a wound, you're looking at a clock. For one group, the clock is going twice as fast as real time. For one group, the clock is going half as fast as real time. For the third group, it's real time. What happens to the wound? Turns out that the wound heals based on perceived time, clock time, even though the clock was rigged, right? We have so much control, we have barely tapped into it. Yeah. And, and so what I'm getting is perception. When we alter that, <clears throat> our whole body- Everything changes. Everything, your unified yeah. body, mind is- Yeah. And yeah. Yes. You change your thought, you're changing your body. You change your body, you're changing the way you're thinking. And sometimes the differences are subtle, so we don't realize it, but there are always changes. Yeah. Every yeah. Were there now, any surprises for you in this in terms of... You know, it's so funny. Everybody, I mean, I've been doing a million podcasts now because I want people to come to know the book. Um, and so several people have asked me this question. And the truth of the matter is that the studies that we'll talk about in a minute, the more mind studies, um, stem from my having an experience, noticing something, and then seeing, is this more generally true? So there aren't any surprises there. The mind-body unity studies, yeah, a, a little surprise. I wouldn't do the study if I didn't think it would work. Right. So it's not so much surprise as yes, thank goodness I'm right, because <laughs> there are all these other studies I want to do and, and so on. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is insightful. And I, and in the mindful body in your, in your book, I know that I've been, I'm about halfway through it. So full disclosure, I've not read the full part, but I've, I'm upset. I can't hear your voice on the audio book too. I, I, I want you to read yeah. your book so good but it's all good i'm still getting it and for uh there's several concepts you also talk about and the one that really really stuck out to me was this similarly like work life integration versus work life yeah. balance can yeah. you share more about that cuz i think we sure. are on stress balls sure. now and we have to figure out new ways of doing things well um people are led to believe um that stress is necessary 
you know, and that work has to be stressful. And I vehemently disagree. Stress is a function of the views we take of events. If you take a different view, a more positive view, you're not going to experience as much stress. Interestingly, also, people don't realize that stress is based on prediction. What it is, is you believe that something is going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be awful. And first of all, most of the things we dread never happen. That's the first thing. Um, but um, a way to deal with that is ask yourself for three, four reasons why it won't happen. And as soon as you generate those, you go from it's going to happen to maybe it won't. Then um, imagine that it does happen. How might that actually be a good thing? And that's the piece. Once you master those two pieces, you'll never be stressed again. But for those who don't in this quick interview, understand just what I'm saying. Here's a one liner for them. As soon as something happens and you get yourself crazed, ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? And it's almost never a tragedy. Oh my God, the dog ate the homework. Oh my God, I missed the bus. I missed the deadline, you know, whatever. And they take a breath and recognize that the world isn't going to end and uh, the consequences will probably be negligible if any consequences at all. But when we're talking about stress, I believe that stress is the major killer, not you know just bad for you. So if we took people, and this is a supposition, I was going to do this study with people in China, but it never came to pass. Very hard study to do. We look at people who are just diagnosed with cancer and no one is gonna say, oh, well, I have cancer. I mean, everybody's gonna be stressed. But then we let people adjust to it or not over the next two weeks. Now, we start testing how stressed they are, let's say every three weeks after that. I believe their reaction, how stressed they are, over and above genetics, over and above their treatment, over and above nutrition, will predict um, the, the course of the disease. Okay, and stress is psychological. So if you can keep yourself from being stressed, um, you've won half of the battle. I've, I've heard, of, yeah, exactly. I, I, I 100% agree with you, and I'm not the researcher, but I, I, I think that that's accurate, knowing the stress is what the body also processes, which then leads to things like the things I believe proven yeah. immune system to function, everything, everything, defunction. every part of your body is thrown off. Yeah. So even if stress. I'm getting medicine and I'm, 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 I'm taking yeah. care of myself, if I'm just worrying all the time thinking, Oh, this will never work or why, why me or anything, then that is the stress that's also prohibiting. Yeah. So you bring up something that um, I enjoy about the book is I'm very sensitive to language. And so um, there are subtle ways that language reveals what we're really thinking mm -hmm. in ways that we're oblivious to it. And so um, uh, this is about trying something, which whatever you just said made me think of it. So, you know, people think trying is good. And trying is certainly better than not trying, you know, than just giving up in the first place. But trying has built into it an expectation for failure. You wouldn't try to eat an ice cream cone. You just eat the ice cream cone, right? And so when we talk about trying, um, so we do studies where we have one group try to do whatever it is we're going to have them do. The other group just do it. And across different activities and the doing group always outperforms. Another thing that's kind of fun, uh, hope. Hope sounds good, right? Good, well, yep. 
being hopeful is of course better than being hopeless but hope itself also has built into it an expectation for failure you don't get up in the morning go into the kitchen hoping you'll have a cup of coffee right you just expect to have a cup of coffee all right so there are lots of these one that's most relevant to health um is about um remission versus cure so i went to see a friend of mine who had a very very bad case of cancer and she had just come back from mass general and i said eva how are you she said well i'm in remission and right then you know a light bulb went off and i said wait a second if i take the exact same test presumably they're going to tell me i don't have cancer why is it that i don't have it but you have it in remission that it's lurking there they can't see it you know and what happens is if you believe that the cancer is there imperceptible and it's going to come back that's very stressful all right so we looked at women who were on a cancer awareness walk breast cancer and we simply um try to distinguish and ask them did they see their cancer as cured or in remission okay and um what we found is that those people and then we checked back in six months later those people who saw themselves as cured were much better psychologically and physically on all the measures we took. Yeah. You know, you have a, you get a cold, Rachel, and the cold goes away. You don't see the cold in remission, right? And if you get another cold, in some ways it's the same cold because colds are all the same. In another way, they're all different. And it's the same thing with cancer. That if the cancer cancer were to come back, in some ways it's the same, which is why you can see it as having been in remission. But in some ways it's also different. And so you can see yourself as having been cured. And when you're cured, you go about living in such a way that you're making yourself healthier. You know, um, so again, remission is better than having the cancer be active. Better still is that next step. So what, so let's say you've, so for those who've had cancer or in this scenario, what should we, what should you be saying to yourself? Is it definitely not, I hope I don't have cancer. What would you say? Well, no, if you had cancer and the medical world tells you that uh, your cancer is in remission, um, you can inquire with them or check out with other oncologists and say, uh, is it reasonable for me to see myself as cured? And mm -hmm. most of them will tell you yes. And then you see yourself as cured and then you live. That's great. You, know, you stand tall and you feel good. And everything you do is nurturing yourself so that um, you're going to be stronger. So, and being stronger, either you won't end up with another bout of cancer, or if you do, you're going to be even stronger and better able to deal with it. it yeah, that's such a great way to say that. Cause of my, I, I imagine there's a lot of individuals who maybe don't ask a question that would be that Curious. No, you, I mean, people typically take the medical world at okay, their word. And, 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 you know, the, and these are people who are working very hard, who are educated and by and large, very well-meaning, but it's still the case that we should never just hand ourselves over to them or anybody else, because all of the information that they've been taught, first of all, it's already dated, right? Second and more important is science, whether it's medical science, any kind of science only gives us probabilities. That means they're best guesses, which is very different from this causes that. This could cause that, 
Very different. Now, I was at a horse event many years ago, and this changed my life. So you didn't tell your audience I'm Harvard Yale all the way through. All it's very way. important before I tell them this to know I've got all these distinguished scientists awards, even a genius award. Okay, so I'm at this horse event. This man says, well, I watch his horse for him because he wants to get his horse a hot dog. Well, you know, I mean, nobody knows better. They can know as well, but nobody knows better than I. Horses don't eat meat. Good. He comes back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. And that's when I realized that everything I think I know could be wrong and all the humility that that brought with it. All right. Now, if you know you don't know or you think you might not know, you pay attention. It's when you think you know that you no longer pay attention. And 45 years of my research has shown that virtually all of us are mindless almost all the time. You can see mindlessness is frequently an error, but rarely in doubt. All right. And to no fault of our own, we're taught absolutes. We're taught horses don't eat meat. You know, we're taught um, one in one is two. Well, one in one is not always two. If you were to add one watt of chewing gum plus one watt of chewing gum, one plus one is one. Okay. That no matter what it is you've been taught that you're sure of, there's at least one context, probably more, where it's just not so. And so uh, people are afraid, you know, not to know. They're afraid they're going to seem stupid. They don't know, you know, what to do if they're talking to somebody who acts like they do know. Then you either fake it or you get out of a situation as quickly as you can. So I'm here to free everybody to tell you, I don't know. You don't know. Uh, nobody knows. And not knowing is good because then we're in a position to make everything new again. Yeah. Well, this is a great point, I think, in, in the Mindful Body book, because you're, as the mother of mindfulness, I think really helping, well, ho holding people accountable that mindfulness isn't about necessarily sitting down on a cushion and doing something like that. Yeah, no, no. Me meditation isn't mm -hmm. mindfulness. Meditation is a practice you engage in to result in post-meditative mindfulness. And meditation is fine. You know, some wonderful things that result when you meditate. This is very different. Here, you're not sitting by yourself. You're out in the world. Um, and it's not a practice. You, you, you know, Rachel, you've never been to my house here. Um, so you, and I'll invite you, but right now, for argument's sake, you come to the house you don't have to practice. Everything's going to be new. You go, oh, look at that. Look at the art she has. Look at that. That's mess over there. You would notice things. Yeah. Right. What mindfulness is, as we study it, is simply noticing, active noticing. You don't notice, though, when you think you know. So it's noticing new things about the things you know. And when you do that, you become sensitive to context and perspective. Um, you can have rules and routines, but they guide what you do. They don't determine what you do. Um, and this process of noticing is the essence of engagement. So it feels good. So it feels good. And as you're doing it, the neurons are firing and you, you seem alive. People find you more appealing. Um, you live longer, you're happier, your relationships are better. Not only that, but it leaves its imprint on the things that we do. Yep. So mindfulness, as I study it, is simple and couldn't be better for us. Not only that, but it's energy begetting, not con uh, consuming. When you're having a good time, 
you can't have a good time unless you're mindful. You have to show up for the good time. You know, you do if you like crossword puzzles, a silly example, but yeah. Or let's take a joke. I tell you a joke and you laugh, and the reason the joke is funny is because there was a surprise ending. Oh, I thought you were going here, but you went there. Now, if I tell you the same joke again, it's no longer funny. Right. So it's the, the newness um, that uh, keeps us engaged. And since everything is always changing, everything looks different from different perspectives. Everything is always new. So we could all save a lot of money and not spend our our our, our savings on traveling the world. We could just sit in our rooms and notice new things. And that's really right. That's way. actually that's actually right. And, you know, so lots of people, if you were going to travel, half of the fun in traveling is deciding in advance where you're going to go, what are you going to do? So this one week vacation is spread out to, you know, to three weeks, four weeks. Um, and that first part of the vacation where you're doing all that planning and imagining yeah. you're in your house. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I, uh, I also know from what I talk about with people who are burning out and stressed out as corporate leaders, I cite you a lot in, in terms of being curious and, and active noticing. Yeah. I'll say, okay, so, but mindfulness isn't curiosity. The reason for that is, so let's say you're reading a newspaper and you spill some hot chocolate and you say, you know, is that an R? Okay, so it is an R or whatever other letter. Um, so the, the point that I'm trying to make poorly is that when you're curious, there's an answer. And then it ends. Okay. When you're mindful, it never ends because it's always changing. But being curious, again, is better than not being cool. curious. Okay. Like trying is better than giving up, but there's a better way. Right. Okay. So we need, yeah. So the act, so being mindful, if I'm understanding you correctly, is the, the continuum of noticing the new things. And right. Then yeah, now, you know, that it, when you do this often enough, then you come to see, gee, the things I thought I knew, I don't know very well at all. Then you end up with a different appreciation of everything. So I don't look outside to notice new things because I know that I don't know. So if you can accept that you don't know, then you will naturally mindfully approach whatever it is you're doing. So literally telling yourself, I don't know. And know. so, and you shouldn't know because you can't know. How would you know? Right. Yeah. And that way, I'm I'm giving I'm allowing myself to access a lot more. Right. Field, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So give me another horseback riding example. So I'm on a horse and I'm racing through the woods and I tell myself, watch out for the branch so you don't get hit in the head and knocked off the horse. So that's vigilance. Be vigilant to those branches. Well, vigilance sounds a little like mindfulness, but it's not. Okay, so I'm racing through the woods. I'm not going to be hit by a branch, but I don't notice the boulder that the horse now trips over because I wasn't paying attention to it. So it's sort of like a soft openness. You're not attending to any specific thing. And because you're not, you're sort of open to much more information. And so when you're mindful in this way, you, you get to uh, see um, experience benefits to which other people are blind and you avert the danger not yet arisen. And then, and you're just at peace. You know, that when you recognize that outcomes are in our heads, 
They're not in events. Events aren't good or bad. People aren't good. This is the way we interpret things. And you can just as easily tell yourself a different story. And so when you recognize good is bad, bad is good. All right. So it's fine. You know, Rachel, you and I are going to go out to lunch. If the food is good, wonderful. If the food isn't good, wonderful. I won't eat as much. It'd be better for my waistline. If the food is awful, I'll be able to pay more attention to what you're telling me. There's always you know, um, an understanding that leaves you, you know, always, virtually always in the lives that most of us are living at least. Uh, yeah. And, and I think part of that is our brains are such labelers. We just enjoy categorizing and labeling at such a level that. Well, we can, you know, I mean, um, we need categories. The problem um, is that we think the categories, we, we behave and act as if these categories are handed down from the heavens. <laughs> rather than somebody just decided what the category is, right? So years and years ago, I think it started in England, but whatever, we adopted it here, that you were supposed to retire when you were 65. Yes. That, that didn't come from anything. You know, so you had people who were under 65, people over 65. This is a rule you're and, talking about. Yeah, that's right. But the category, younger yeah. and older, right? And um, so now, you know, the rule makes no sense and people are working until they're, you know, until they decide I've had enough but not based on age. So what am I saying? I'm saying we can have categories, but along with the categories, we need to understand that they were person created, that they're not true or useful across all contexts and all time. Yeah. All right, so let me give you an example. All rules and categories, it's all the same thing. So I play tennis. So the rule to tennis is that you get two serves. Now, um, so I play doubles. I throw the ball up. I kill it. It doesn't go in. Okay. So now I have my backup wuss serve that they can return very easily. If I, if I created the rule, we would have had three serves. Then the first one I hit, I kill. The second one, I've learned from that first one. I hit it hard again. And I still have my backup third serve. The point is the, you know, my tennis performance is in part dictated by somebody else's decision about how many serves we should have, about the rules to the game. Now, this is very important, especially for women. And I would say, especially for short women, maybe even especially for short black women. Okay, what am I saying? If the more different you are from the person who created the rule, the more important it is for you to do it your own way. And the only way you can do it your own way is to realize that the way you're taught to do it was just somebody's decision that met somebody's needs. And so if I'm lecturing, Rachel, and it's amazing how I'm always able to have someone like this in the audience. Yeah. Um, I look around, is there anybody really tall here? It's like a guy, six, five. I said, can you come up to the stage? Now I'm five, three on a good day. So he's standing next to me at six, five. And we look silly. And then I ask him to put his hand up. I put my hand on his hand. His hand is three inches larger. And then I just raise the question, should we do anything physical the same way? All right. You know, no. Um, but we don't realize how much, um, how mutable, how changeable everything that we're doing is. And that we should find a way that works best for us. I'm, I'm more graphic um, instance might be he's sitting on a toilet and he has a wife who's 4'11 who's sitting on the same toilet 
one of them is not getting their biological needs met. Okay, so we're <laughs> given a world that's stable and stable was based on what worked for whoever created it, for some people, doesn't work for all of us. When we're mindless, it doesn't occur to us to question it. And if you question it, then you can change it. You know, when I gave my first talk years and years ago, uh, I walk into this room, a big room, and the um, podium is over here and the, you know, the chairs are very far away. And I know that's going to make me nervous. So what do I do? I rearrange the furniture to bring the chairs close to me. Now, I think most people, I mean, if you ask them, could you move the chairs? Most people would say yes. The point is when you're mindless, it doesn't occur to you. Right. So this mindlessness robs us of choices. It robs us of the ability to to change the world to to better meet our needs. We have to get off that auto autopilot, I think. Isn't right. It? Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. the problem is that when you're not there, you're not there to know you're yeah. not. there. Yeah. So yeah. people don't know they're on autopilot. And uh, that's why I'm here to announce after 45 years of research, virtually all of us, most of the time are not there sad but yeah because, because when you're there then again the neurons are firing and it's good for your health and you feel better you light up people like you more um everything and you know when you're doing your work uh you find ways of doing it that are novel that wouldn't occur to you when you're programmed from the past all the mindlessness leads us to solve today's problems with yesterday's solutions and today is different yep and we can get out of those stressful times when our when our bodies are not as connected and not unified in our ways that could serve us, yeah. Yeah. right? So, yeah. you know, there's no time um, now for me to share all of the stories in the book, but there are so many things that I would love people to know. We have, you know, uh, placebos are perhaps our strongest medication. You can't give yourself a placebo because you know it's nothing. So it's not going to work. But there is something bizarre that we have to get a doctor to give us nothing in a yes. pill. It's just a sugar pill for us to then heal. But if the pill isn't healing us, who's healing us? We're healing ourselves. And so in the book, I outline um, a um, procedure, treatment that we've studied across many chronic illnesses called attention to symptom variability, which is just a fancy way of saying be mindful, mm -hmm. um, that turns out to be very effective. We've done it with people who have MS, arthritis, chronic pain, um, Parkinson's, lots of biggies, and it, it seems to work. Um, so, and, and all of this is not arguing that we shouldn't go see the doctor, but I think that you know, sometimes you can't get there right away and that there are many things we can do before we go see the doctor. And uh, some of these things may make that trip unnecessary. The bottom line is that we have enormous control over our health and our well-being. And um, it's time that people woke up. Um, you know, mindlessness in a sense is being sealed in an unlived life. And it's time to break the seal. Mm, that's powerful. And your book is the way through, I would say. Yeah, where you can read this and learn about all the great work you've done over 45 years, right. anecdotes, stories, and data and knowledge so that you can get off of the autopilot and really shift 
in that in that way that's needed. So for you, as we wrap up here, you've mentioned some great some great work already. What would you say if I you know if I didn't know anything about mindfulness other than I really know I should learn more and I get your book, what can change in my life? What would you say are the things that I could walk out of there after reading that everything everything virtually everything. Yes. Yeah. yeah, No, no. I mean, people, you know, emotions, people think you made me angry. Uh, Nobody makes you angry. Right. Right, You know that um, all that we experience depends on the way we frame things. And the more mindful you are, the the more frames you have available to you. There's a lot in there about decision making. That's great fun. Um, Let me just give people the bottom line and they can read it and figure it out. The way most people are making decisions now is perfectly fine, but they don't realize it. They think they should be doing cost-benefit analyses, which doesn't make sense because every cost is a benefit. Every benefit is potentially a cost. It adds up to zero. So rather than waste your time trying to make the right decision, I think time would be better spent by just choosing anything and then making the decision right. So just going with it and going. And it, yes, you could flip a coin. Yeah. You could take the first alternative. It doesn't matter because prediction is an illusion and decision-making relies on being able to predict, right? You give yourself the outcomes and you're trying to predict if I choose this, what will happen if I choose that? And we can't predict. We can post it. Um, we can look at something after the fact and say, yeah, you know, um, I knew that was going to happen. But going forward, we live our lives going forward. And going forward, you know, anything could happen. We could finish this conversation. My dog could start screaming, right? So I have to quickly not say goodbye and run to the dog. I can lose the uh, cable connection, internet connection. I could have a heart attack. We won't go there. How about this? I could get really hungry and feel like I must go to, you know, there's no way of knowing. And that should be freeing to people once they realize that whatever occurs, they can see in such a way as to be positive, no matter what. You know, so I'm giving an example of decision making very quick. And I'm already, um, okay. One so last if, if I say to you, um, do you want to meet my friend? She is very um, impulsive. You'd say, no, why would I want to meet her? If I said to you, do you want to meet my friend? She's very spontaneous. Yeah. Well, spontaneous and impulsive are the same thing. So what does that mean? Do I want to meet her? Yes or no? Well, there's no decision to be made. You can't add up things. If you say for whatever you're looking at, how is it good? How is it bad? Um, You recognize. But what ends up happening is that we make the decisions that we make work for us, not because of some strange cost-benefit analysis or other process we went through. I'm almost sorry, Rachel, that I got into this because it's so, it's so important to me and there's no time to really make it clear. But the idea of not having to waste your time making decisions, you know, um, you can never know that the decision you made was right or wrong, right? Should I go to Harvard or Yale? So you go to Harvard, you don't like it. Oh, I should have gone to Yale. But Yale might have been worse, might have been better. You know, and the point is that while you're at Harvard, Yale, or Bronx Community College, you know, it makes no difference. There's always a way to make what we're doing um, interesting, exciting, and approach it mindfully. I think that's a great way to 
just put this all together where we can know and trust our own decisions, know that it's just whatever is it is, and it's not a time to be in the analysis paralysis of all the data. Right. And not to be stressed by all of this, yes, that you know, happen. that um, uh, whatever you're doing, it's not the wrong way of doing it. Um, unless it's not working for you, then change it. And everything again can be changed. So, I mean, you know, we have data where we're improving people's eyesight. And I told you the counterclockwise matter, you know, in their late 80s and 90s, and, you know, their vision improves, um, all sorts of things that seem almost well hard to believe except we have so many studies so i hope people will get the book the mindful body and um enjoy it and take it seriously and so then um, my hope is that the whole world is going to become even more mindful and that'll make it less frustrating for everybody else. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we can all focus on ourselves to understand ourselves better, to learn from ourselves, which can help everything as we move out into the world. So your book is profound. Thank you for bringing it to the world, sharing it with us today. And I do think, yeah, maybe like people can change their lives profoundly in every way, like you say, just with- And this easily, book. that's the point. And easily. That, and you don't have to- um, sit for 20 minutes twice a day with your eyes closed, which is a fine <laughs> practice. Exactly. Um, to achieve these changes, as soon as you understand um, the changes that can easily be made, it, it will just unfold. Yes. And I can't, ex can't express enough to go out and get this book if you haven't gotten it yet. The Mindful Body, Ellen, Dr. Ellen Langer, Thank you for being on the podcast today. Where can we find more out about you? Where can we buy the book? How does that work? I think that it, well, you can buy the book any place books are sold. You go to Amazon, uh, Random House, my website, which is ellenlanger.com, or you just put my name in Google and too much information will find come you. up. Okay. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Ellen. I so appreciate Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's wonderful to see you again. All right.